Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the Gospel of Matthew and discuss temptation and disciple-making. So if you'll open your Bibles up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, we'll begin our lesson. I'll open us up in prayer. Father in heaven, just thank you so much for this beautiful day and for these people that we've gathered together to dig into your word and to continue our study of Matthew. We thank you for giving us your word that we can study and not only study, but have the Holy Spirit help us apply it to our lives so that we can continue to change to be more like the people that you want us to be. I ask this morning that you speak through me and you speak through each of those that will speak up later during our discussions so that we can all learn from one another and just guide our discussions in the way that you would like us to focus this morning. There's a lot that we have to study and a lot of verses to look at, Father. So just I ask that you just guide our discussion today in a very powerful way. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're continuing our study of Matthew. And we're in Matthew chapter 4, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Now, I want to apologize in advance. I've got more verses all over the place that we could cover. I know we can't do them all. But I'm going to have you flipping around more than usual. And I'm sorry about that. If you find that distracting, you take notes, just write some of the verses down. You don't have to maybe go there and you can refer back to them later if you want. But we are going to be flipping around quite a bit. And I know I can't cover it all, so I won't even get to all of it. But it should be fun. Some good stuff this morning. So when we left off last time, Jesus had just been baptized by John the Baptist. And I'll refer you to chapter 3 at the very end of that chapter, verses 16 and 17. We saw that after he was baptized, he came up immediately from the water. So it's clear that he was immersed. And we talked about immersion, baptism versus sprinkling last time. So if you're interested in that, you missed that, you can go listen to that. So he comes up from out of the water and then the heavens were opened and the spirit of God descended upon him as a dove. And then in verse 17, we see then the third person of the Trinity. So we've got Jesus, the son, we've got the Holy Spirit. And then the father speaks out and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So we have all three members of the Trinity there. And so we discussed that was like Jesus's coronation as king. This is the beginning of his ministry as this happens. And now as we go into chapter four, what we're going to see is immediately Jesus is going to be tested by Satan. And Jesus is going to demonstrate that he truly is the king. So after his baptism, and he's now has the Holy Spirit descending upon him, his father has showered him with this praise. What happens immediately? We're going to now see temptation by Satan to test. Is this really Jesus going to be able to be faithful and abide by God's plan for his ministry? So why don't we begin chapter 4, verse 1. So it says, then, and that means after this baptism, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So temptation is not sin. God allows this temptation to happen to us as well. God had just praised his son, and now he's allowing this temptation. These are tests to help us grow in our faith, and we're going to see Jesus is going to be tempted and tested as well. Verse 2, 
And after he, being Jesus, had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. So even though he's God, he's 100% man too. And you go 40 days fasting, you're going to be hungry. And it was interesting to me that Moses also fasted 40 days. Just keep your finger. We're going to be flipping around, so don't lose your place here in Matthew. But if you go over to Exodus, second book in the Bible after Genesis, 34:28, and let me show you where I got that. 34:28, you see it says, So he, and this is talking about Moses, So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat bread or drink water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So even Moses fasted for 40 days and 40 nights before receiving the Ten Commandments from God. So we'll go back over to Matthew, verse 3. And the tempter came, and your translation may say Satan. Satan came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, that's Jesus, answered and said, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So let me show you that too. Flip over now to Deuteronomy, which is right before Joshua, fifth book of the Old Testament. And I want you to go to Deuteronomy 8.3 and keep your place over here in Deuteronomy for a minute because I'm going to come back over here again a couple of times. So chapter 8, verse 3 of Deuteronomy, it says, And he humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So the reason I'm showing you this is God did this to the Israelites as well. He was trying to show the Israelites to not depend upon themselves, but depend upon God. And Israel was tempted in this way, just like we see Jesus is being tempted. God provided the manna for their food each day, but they still even hoarded it. They knew God told them he was going to give it to them the next day, but they didn't trust God, and they would even try to hold some of it back for the next day just in case God wasn't true to his word. It always spoiled by the next day. And God was trying to teach them to depend on God, not themselves. And what we're going to see as we go through the first 11 verses here of Matthew is that Israel was an unfaithful son in contrast to the faithful son of Jesus. Israel failed in its purpose to be the light and minister to all the nations and point the way to all the other nations to God. What we're going to see, though, is Jesus is not going to fail, even though he's being tempted. So you should see this contrast. Let's pick back up in Matthew 4, verse 5. Then the devil took him into the holy city, being Jerusalem, and he stood him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, you don't have to go there, but let me just show you in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah 11, 1, tell you a little bit about some of the history here. It says, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. So that's where the temple was. That's where the religious leaders were. But they couldn't get people to go live there. And so it says, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in the other cities. And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was considered the holy city. And Satan takes Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple. 
which is located at the southeast corner of the temple. I've been to the Temple Mount. The temple's not there anymore. It was destroyed in A.D. 70. But at this time, he takes Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple, overlooking the Kidron Valley. It's beautiful looking over that way. And he takes him up there, and he says to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So what Satan is doing, he is tempting Jesus to force this divine intervention by God. He's trying to tell Jesus, look, prove that you trust God. Put him to the test. Let's see if you truly are the Son of God, and you're the one who was prophesied here by the way, this comes from Psalm 91, 11 through 12. I'll just go over there and read that to you real quick. Psalm 91, 11 through 12 says, For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And so that's where this comes from. So he's saying, Jesus, you're the son of God. So let's see if God will actually take care of you, just like it was prophesied here. Verse 7, Jesus answers him and says, On the other hand, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And remember I said, don't lose your place in Deuteronomy. Go over to Deuteronomy 6.16. Go back over to Deuteronomy. I told you I was going to make you work today. It says in Deuteronomy 6.16, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. And so Jesus is quoting the Old Testament back to Satan. What we see is Jesus is dealing with Satan by quoting Scripture to him. He's really saying, look, the Bible is the authority for right living. And he's telling Satan, I'm not going to test God. I'm not going to presume upon his grace And I'm not going to test God. That's Jesus' response to him. And so now, verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Must have been some mountain. I mean, if you can see all the kingdoms of the world. But anyway, it's not clear where he took him, but they're up somewhere. And Satan says to Jesus, all these things will I give you if you fall down and worship me. So this certainly shows that Satan is ruling the earth because we don't see Jesus respond to him when we look at this. Jesus doesn't say, you don't have the power to give that to me. And yet what Satan is saying to Jesus is, look, you can have all of this without going through all the sacrifice and on the cross and all the suffering that you're about to endure. Why don't you just trust me? Go with my plan. Jesus knew he was going to have the kingdom after the cross And yet Satan is offering him Satan's plan, a kingdom without suffering. And Satan's saying, look, my plan is better than God's plan. And, you know, this is always Satan's approach, whether it be through our work or our desire for power or money or success or personal interest. Satan's always trying to twist things around and get us to worship him and follow his plan rather than God's plan. Satan wants us to believe that we can have it all. If we just go after it, isn't that what we hear in our culture? We just got to take things on and go get it, and it will be ours. That's Satan's way of getting us away from God. We saw him do the same thing with Adam and Eve. 
And let's look at what Jesus' response to Satan is. He says in verse 10, Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And you can see that in Deuteronomy 6.13. I'll flip over there. I'm going back over there real quick. It says, You shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. What we see is Jesus just continually quoting scripture to battle Satan. And when you look at these three tests, Jesus responded to Satan by saying, I'm only going to trust God. I'm not going to presume upon his grace. I'm not going to test God. And in the end, I'm going to follow God's plan. I'm not going to follow you. And as we look at these tests, these definitely demonstrate that Jesus is more powerful than Satan. And what we also see sometimes in our own lives, we might get tested and have a little victory. And then sometimes what can happen is we can then feel like, wow, okay, so I got through that one. Now our pride starts coming in only to bring us failure the next time because we didn't depend on God. We started thinking that we did it. And so we don't see Jesus doing that at all. We see Jesus continually going back to Scripture, depending on God, and not falling for Satan's ways of trying to tempt us to misuse what God has given us or tempting Jesus or tempting us to rely on ourselves rather than God. Satan always uses these exact same things on us that you see that he's used on Jesus. There's nothing new with Satan. He uses the lust of the flesh by tempting Jesus with food when he's hungry. He uses the lust of the eyes saying, look how good this looks. Don't you want this? Look at this. He does the same thing with us. And he did the same thing with Adam and Eve. He says, look, this is good. It'll make you wise. It'll make you just like God. So he starts dealing with our pride and the pride of life. This is all the ways that Satan still tries to attack us. And yet we see Jesus used the word and his obedience to God to not fall for any of that. And then we see in verse 11, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him, meaning Jesus. So the battle with Satan has begun. It's not over. We're going to be tested. The Bible is clear about that. If you would, just bear with me. I'm going to show you a few verses on this. Go way over to the right into the book of James, which is after Hebrews. If you take a look at James 1, verses 2 through 4, it says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so we're going to have these tests and we're going to have these trials from time to time. And God uses these things, allows it to happen so that we can grow in our relationship with God. Stay in James and just go over just a few chapters over to James 4, 7. And there you see it says, submit therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, a lot of people can remember part of that verse. It's not a very long verse, but it gets misquoted all the time. Most people leave out the first part, submit therefore to God. They just read, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. That's how people remember this verse. And that's where they get messed up because that sounds like we can resist the devil with our own power. And the devil's not afraid of us. I can just tell you that. He's not afraid at all. But what he is afraid of is when we submit to God and draw upon the power of the Holy Spirit that's within us to resist the devil, not by our own doing, 
but by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. And finally, we've looked at this verse together so many times, but it's so important. I just want us, I think it's appropriate to just look at it again. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, which says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. So we're going to be tempted, but there's always an escape. There's always an exit ramp. And God isn't going to allow us to be tempted beyond which we are able if we just draw on the power of the Holy Spirit, which is very encouraging to me. So we see the temptation. We're going to have temptation. We need to follow the model that Jesus has given us in dealing with those types of temptations. So now we're going to move on. But what I want to do, there is probably about a year's time that passes between verse 11 and 12. Remember, when this is written, these verse numbers and chapter numbers weren't here. They were added later. And I can tell you where I get that. It's in several places. If you go over to the Gospel of John, which we studied some time ago, it'll cover that about year period from John 1.19 to chapter 4, verse 42. And so you can go look at that later if you want to. I'm not going to do that today. But during that time, that's where we read about Jesus preaching near the Jordan. He turned water into wine. He cleansed the temple of the money changers. He gave testimony to Nicodemus. He met the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. So all those things happened in between verse 11 and 12. So you can look at that if you want to. But then let me take you over and show you some additional things that happened. We'll get there eventually, but just to add context to what we're going to read. We'll stay in Matthew, so just go over a little bit. I'm not going to teach on it so much today as just read it to you to give you the context. Matthew 14, verses 1 through 12. At this time, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John, John the Baptist, had been saying to him, meaning Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her, meaning Herodias, because she was married to his brother. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they regarded him as a prophet, talking about John the Baptist. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Thereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. And having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guest. And he, uh, and he sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported it to Jesus. Okay, so that happened that we see, we'll get to in Matthew 14. And so now we come to verse 12, and it says, Now when he, being Jesus, heard that John the Baptist had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. Okay, so that's the timeline. Jesus now hears that John the Baptist had been taken into prison. 
verse 13, and leaving Nazareth, which is where he was, that's Jesus' hometown, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, meaning by the Sea of Galilee, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. So I'll tell you about these two. Zebulun and Naphtali, they were two of the tribes of Israel, and they settled on lands that bordered the Sea of Galilee. Zebulun was to the south and included Nazareth, and Naphtali was to the north and included Capernaum. And this is where some of the disciples came from. In these two tribes, they didn't follow God's commands when they battled the Canaanites to take the land, and they ended up intermarrying with the Canaanites. And so these two tribes were actually viewed by the Jews in Jerusalem as being unfaithful people and not following God's commands. I'll just show you real quick John 7. Let me just go there real quick. John 7, 52, and this is where the Jewish leaders are talking about Jesus. And they answered and said to him, this is to Nicodemus, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee, which actually that's not even true because Jonah came from Galilee. You remember Jonah was the one who God wanted to go to Nineveh and was swallowed by the big fish, not necessarily a whale, and was in there for three days and then came back. Elijah, it's also thought, came from Galilee. And so the Jewish leaders, they just missed it. They just missed it completely. I just wanted to point that out to you as well. And so there's this prophecy that we're going to see about these lands. And it says in verse 14, I'm back over in Matthew chapter 4, verse 14. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah, the prophet, saying the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness, see, these are unfaithful people, saw a great light. And to those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, so these were really twisted people, upon them a light dawned. So let me unpack this just a little bit. This prophecy is in Isaiah. Well, let me just see. If I'll go over there real quick. Isaiah 9. Let me just show you that to you. It says, Isaiah 9, verse 1, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea, on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. And let me just skip on down to verse 6. For a child is born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on, forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is what is being referred to here. And by the way, Jesus was not afraid of Herod. You know, even though he heard that Herod had taken into prison John the Baptist, Jesus isn't afraid of anybody. I mean, he's God. He wasn't afraid. It was the religious leaders that he was more concerned about. I'm not going to say afraid because they hated John the Baptist. In fact, they wanted John the Baptist killed as well. And the problem was that now 
that John the Baptist had been taken into prison. Jesus was concerned because now he even had a bigger following than John the Baptist, and so he knew the religious leaders were going to be coming after him. Let me show you where I get that. John 4, uh, verse 1 through 3 says, When therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And so Jesus knew it wasn't time yet for all of what we'll continue to read about to take place. And that's why he went on to Capernaum, which allowed these prophecies also to be fulfilled. Let me also just mention here that we see the Sea of Galilee mentioned. I've had the benefit of actually traveling there. It's beautiful. It's called the Sea of Galilee. It's actually a lake. It's about 13 miles long, about eight miles wide. You'll see other places in the Bible. Sometimes it's referred to as the Sea of Tiberias. It's also called Genesaret. So it goes by different names, but it's still the same area. And this is really where Jesus' ministry begins, in the north around the Sea of Galilee. And Matthew is now going to describe to us, as we continue our study through Matthew, how Jesus' ministry then moves south all the way to Jerusalem, as we'll read through chapter 18 of Matthew. And then we're going to see that Matthew is writing this book to the Jews. And so the Jews would be very familiar with this prophecy that we looked at from Isaiah. They'd be very familiar with that. We also see that Jesus is referred to as light. And Jesus is often referred to as light. I'm not going to show you all the verses that I have on that, but since we're in John, since I was reading out John, I'll stay in John. Let me just show you a few of those verses. First, I'll begin with John 1, verse 1. Let me just read some of this to you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that's Jesus, by the way. He, meaning Jesus, was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then I'll skip on down, verse 8. He's talking about John the Baptist here. He says, John the Baptist was not the light, but he came that he might bear witness of the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. And then let me skip on down to verse 14. And the word, which is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, meaning John the Baptist, bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So that's a place where he's referred to as light. And then verse 3 19, it also says, and this is the judgment, that the light is come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. And then it says, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. 
And I've got so many other verses here. If you're taking notes, you might go look at John 8, 12 and also 1 Peter 2, 9. I won't read all of those to you just for our time today. So let me continue on. Verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach. So here's the beginning of his ministry. In his preaching, he said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this was similar to what John the Baptist was saying. This is also a reference. You can go back and read Deuteronomy 30, which we looked at many months ago. He's telling people to turn away from their sins, that the long-awaited Messiah is here. Your king is in your presence, he's telling them. He's near, and yet we're going to see he's going to be rejected. And so, verse 18, And walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, So we see throughout Simon and Peter are used interchangeably, same person. And Andrew, who is Peter's brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So we're going to see the disciples were just common laborers for the most part. I'll take you over now to 1 Corinthians 1, 26, just to add a little color to that. 1 Corinthians 1, 26, and I'll read that to you. It says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are that no man should boast before God. So it's just interesting to me how Jesus chose this really lowly group. And we're going to see sinners. We're going to see Matthew, who's writing this tax collector, the low of the low in the eyes of the Jewish leaders, because Matthew, as a tax collector, took money from the Jews. The way the tax collection system worked Even though he's Jewish, he aligned himself with Rome. Rome said, you got to collect this amount of taxes. To the extent you collect more than that, you get to keep that. And so tax collectors were hated because they were usually very wealthy, and that's why they were hated. So Jesus chooses the despised to shame the people who thought they had their act together. Now, the other thing I want to point out here is many people, when you're reading through Matthew, you think this is the first calling of Jesus to these disciples. That's actually not accurate. These disciples, at this point, know Jesus very well and actually have already expressed their belief in Jesus. They don't fully understand. I'm not going to tell you that. But they have been with Jesus previously and have heard his preaching in our followers. They are disciples of Jesus. Let me show you where I get that. If you go back over to John, John 1.35, and this is going to be a lengthy passage, but I think it's important so that you can see what I'm talking about. John 1.35, I'll begin and I'll just read this to you. It says, again, the next day, John was standing. uh, So this is John the Baptist and two of his disciples. So he's with others. And he looked upon Jesus as he walked and said, behold, the Lamb of God. So John is standing there with two other disciples. They're called disciples and they see Jesus coming. And the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and beheld them following and said to them, who do you seek? And they said, to him, Rabbi, which is translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he, being Jesus, said to them, come and you will see. 
They came, therefore, and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So see, Andrew knew about Jesus even before Simon Peter. And when we were over in Matthew, you can see Andrew and Simon Peter are fishing. So this happened before that time. So Andrew hears about him, verse 41. So Andrew then found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He, Andrew, brought him, meaning Peter, to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas which translated means Peter. The next day he proposed to go forth into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael, and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law, and who also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You shall see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So you can see Jesus had a relationship with these people even before what we're reading in Matthew. I'll just show you one other verse. Stay in John. Just drop down to chapter 2, verse 11. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. So this was the wedding where he turned water into wine and manifested his glory. And here's what I want you to see. And his disciples believed in him. So see, they had belief in him before we get to this passage here that we're looking at in Matthew 4. So now Jesus was walking along the shores. He sees Simon, Peter. He sees Andrew. They were fishing. And he says to them in verse 19, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. So now they've come to belief in him. Now he's calling them to evangelism. He's saying, I'm going to teach you to become disciple makers. That's what he's telling his disciples. While he ministered to many others, Jesus poured his life into these disciples to make them fishers of men, to make them people who could go make disciples of others also. And I'm going to talk about that when we close up here at the very end. But Jesus is the model that he wanted all of us to follow and live, to be disciples who make disciples of others. And I read a statistic as I was preparing for this. This stated that something like 95% of all Christians have never led anyone else to Christ, which is just really sad in my humble opinion that Jesus calls us to do that, and yet so many don't follow the call. Picking back up in verse 20, and they immediately left the nets and followed him. So they leave their business career, their boats, their family to follow Jesus, and they're going to then follow Jesus and be trained by him to become disciple makers themselves. Verse 21, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, 
and John, his brother, who we read about when I showed you some of those other verses. And they're in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. When we read over in John 15, 16, Jesus says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So Jesus is choosing his disciples. And you see in verse 22, they immediately left the boat and their father and followed him. So as we continue our study in the coming weeks, we're going to see that Peter, James, and John, those are going to be the disciples that are really the closest to Jesus. I also want to point out that it can be very confusing because there's also a second disciple named James, and then Jesus has a half-brother named James who was not an apostle. So James can be very confusing. And by the way, his half-brother is who wrote the letter of James. And so you got to sort of pay attention so you know which James is being referred to. Just kind of point that out to you. So verse 23, as we close this out, and Jesus was going about in all of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. So we see Jesus, he is the Messiah. He's ministering, he's preaching, he's proclaiming the gospel. He's teaching by explaining the gospel. He's healing to prove his authority. But he's teaching this gospel of forgiveness and restoration of our relationship with God. That's the good news. The bad news is that, and all the Jewish people knew it, that it was impossible to keep the law. You just weren't going to be able to get right with God by trying to do it on your own and keep the law. And we see in verse 24, in the news about him, meaning Jesus, went about into all of Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, taken with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, which is demon-related afflictions, epileptics, paralytics. He healed them all. And we never read about Jesus just doing a partial healing. Whenever he healed you, you were totally healed, and he healed all problems. There were none too great for him, even the incurables, the diseases that were viewed as incurable. These were all verifiable miracles. They were outward healing, and yet they were really only a symbol of the inner healing that was available through forgiveness of sins by placing your faith in Him as Lord and Savior. If you just skip ahead over to Matthew 8, 17 with me real quick, I want to show you something over there that I think you'll find interesting. 8, 17, and again, this is referring to a prophecy in Isaiah, which I can take you to. It says, in order that what was spoken through Isaiah, the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. And in fact, if you go over to Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6, it says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. 
And you can go on and read the rest of this about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And so, continuing on and closing out, verse 25, And great multitudes followed him from Galilee and Decapolis, which is Jordan and Turkey area, and Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan, probably referring to Saudi Arabia. And so, just in summary, God wants to use us all in ministry. I'm going to discuss that in a little bit more detail here in just a minute, but... Also, God is going to use both pleasant, meaning affirming, as well as testing, kind of stretching type experiences in our life to prepare us for the ministry that he wants to work through us to bring others into the kingdom. We saw Jesus was tempted just like we're tempted, but the Holy Spirit can use that tempting in a way to help us grow if we let him. And clearly we see Jesus and the Holy Spirit have power over Satan. So we don't need to fear that. We just need to trust God and not ourselves, which is something we tend to, especially in this culture, fall back on is I can do this. I got this rather than trusting God. Let me just really close out by just mentioning disciple making. What do I mean when I say disciple? A disciple is a learner, a follower and a reproducer. And so a learner is someone who's teachable, someone who really never stops learning and desires to have their life transformed. It's not just learning information. It's really about transformation. If you want to read more about that, if you're taking notes, go look at Matthew 11 verses 25 through 30. A follower is someone who follows the modeling that Jesus gave us and then serves as a model themselves. Modeling is the greatest form of communication. And I direct you over to Mark chapter 2, verse 14, Mark 3, 14, and even 1 Timothy 4, 12, and verse 15. And then finally, a reproducer. A, a disciple is a reproducer. And just we'll get to it at the end of Matthew, but let me read that to you real quick. Matthew 28, 19, which we've looked at many, many times, but I don't think we can look at it enough. This is some of Jesus' last and final words before he ascends to heaven. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And the key verse in disciple making in my mind is found in Second Timothy. You'll find it before Hebrews. So if you kind of know where Hebrews is, that's a big book. Go back to the left. Second Timothy 2.2. And it says, this is Paul talking. And I think this is the definition of discipleship. It says, and the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So I'd encourage each of us to pray to God, to put someone in our life who is faithful that we can pour our lives into to help teach them the things that we've learned and help them mature in their faith. That's really what we've been called to do. And so with that, I'll open it up for discussion. You know, the one thing that kept replaying in my mind as we studied this was just the, at least in my Ryrie, it starts off that this chapter four is about temptation. And that's just something that I suppose we just have to understand that it happens to us all the time. Yes. 
we've talked about the on-ramp, we've talked about prayer, you know, I want a refresher on how to deal with temptation. I have in this day and age nowadays, with all the stuff that is going on, I, I have these different thoughts that come into my head, and some of them are not always positive, you know, about how we deal with temptation and how we, you know, the tools specifically, just, you know, let's go over those one more time. And I'd love to hear if anybody else has the same struggles and ideas. Well, we all do. It's clear that, as we see, even Jesus was tempted. So, you know, if Satan's going to tempt Jesus, he's going to tempt us. And it's also clear to me, as I read through the Bible, just go look at the Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11, you know, of all the great people who we view in the Bible as just fantastic, great people. And look, every one of them fell at some point. I'm not talking about Jesus. I'm talking about everyone else. And so we're going to trip up. But God allows these things to happen to draw us into a closer relationship. He uses that to teach us and to teach us to depend on him. That's why, to me, I'd love to hear if others have verses that they utilize, but that 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that's one that I draw upon that all the time. And I'd love to hear if others see this, but as I've matured in my faith, and look, I'm not finished maturing. I still got a long way to go. But I have gotten to a point now where a lot of times, in fact, I'd say almost even most of the time, before I can kind of see the temptation coming, you know, and it's usually sort of over the same thing that I've seen before. It's usually not something new. It might be a twist on it, but I can kind of see it or feel it coming. And what I found is when I see it, I know it's about to come. When I say, Holy Spirit, you got to help me here. Here it comes. I feel it. I see it. I'm going to fall. I cannot do this on my own. You got to help me. Show me the exit ramp or give me the strength or, you know, this got to be you helping me through this. I can't do it on my own. And I have found when I actually can say that and pray that, it's like, man, all of a sudden the temptation just goes away. I mean, it's just gone. I don't know if that's where... Satan, it says he'll flee from you. <laughs> I don't know. Now, there are times where I just, maybe I'm just unwilling to even say that. And then I fall. And then I have to repent. Uh, I'm not saying I'm good about it every time. But I will say when I do pray that, it changes the whole game. Anybody else have any thoughts or comments about that? That's a great tool, Larry. That's a great tool. Because we all face temptation all of us, in disappointment. I bet if I ask everybody, and I'm not going to ask you to volunteer it, but I bet if I ask you right now, if you were going to actually fall to temptation in the next week, could you right now predict what that might be? And I bet you anything, all of us could say, yeah, it's probably going to be in this area. So we know it's coming. We know what it is. We know where we're weak. So when you see it coming, pray for some help. Thank you for joining us today. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at LarryO'Donnell.com. I hope you'll join us next time as we continue our study.